This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the Urit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Leader ReadyCast. It's one of our mini-cast editions for COVID-19, giving you the news you can use in just 15 minutes. Today, our guest is Dan Heath. His latest book is Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. And I cannot think of a more appropriate book for all of us in emergency management, preparedness, disaster response to be reading in the next few weeks. It's a really insightful read, and Dan's uh, joining us today to share some of his insights. Uh, Dan, along with his brother Chip, has written four bestsellers, Made to Stick, Switch, Decisive, and The Power of Moments. He's a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Knowledge Center, which supports entrepreneurs fighting for social good. He lives in North Carolina, and his books have sold more than three million copies worldwide. We're really fortunate to have Dan with us today. Dan, welcome to the program. Dan, the first question I have for you today is, I want you to think back. In In the book, you talked about the efforts to tackle some really complex problems. You looked at health equity and homelessness, some serious problems. And here we're hit with the COVID-19 global pandemic. It really has knocked the world back on its heels. How would you advise leaders now to be thinking about this in more upstream terms? I think what I would say to leaders is, what's that old Warren Buffett quote about it's, it's not until the tide goes out that you see who's swimming naked? <laughs> I think I would ask leaders to, to look themselves in the mirrors and, and answer the question, were we swimming naked? Like, did, were we caught completely off guard by this? Or had we done some basic preparations for a situation of this type? Because let's be honest, this, this was not a, an asteroid strike out of the blue. You know, people have been talking about the risk of pandemics for literally decades, uh, and even specifically coronavirus pandemics. And it's not that that's core to any uh, of the business leaders' work that might be listening to this, but, but I think preparation for some kind of serious work interruption, whether via pandemic or terrorism or something else, was frankly part of the leadership's job. And I think right now you're starting to see which companies were ready for that, which companies had made plans for that, which companies had resilience and which didn't. So, I mean, just to give you a couple of kind of tangible examples. I was reading a piece by Charles Fishman in The Atlantic uh, that was answering the question, which is kind of fascinating to think about, why is the internet still going? You know, this unprecedented demand, basically out of the blue, all of a sudden the internet usage is up 20, 25% in a matter of days. How in the world does it still function? And so he digs into this question and part of the answer he arrives at is he's taken behind the scenes at AT AT&T And it turns out they've been thinking explicitly about this for a long time. Like a year ago, uh, last May, they ran a pandemic simulation just to figure out, hey, what would we do in a situation like this? Where would we get the extra capacity? How do we keep from going down? That's good leadership. Uh, A smaller example, there's a software company called Trello that wanted to make sure its employees were prepared to work remotely should the occasion arise. And so they had this tradition that for any of their meetings, a staff meeting or an impromptu meeting to talk about a product release or whatever, if there was anybody 
on the meeting roster who needed to join remotely, everyone else would log in remotely to join them. Even if they were sitting in the same conference room, they would all like log in to Zoom just to be training those muscles of working remotely, making sure we understand how to do things when we're not face to face. And so that's, that's the kind of self-assessment I feel like leaders should be going through right now is we're, were we ready for something like this? And what have we learned from this that will make us more ready for the next thing? And, and to be clear, I, I, I don't just mean this as like an emergency preparedness thing. I think that's a very narrow way to look at it. It's more like leaders of organizations are some of the few people who have the luxury and the wherewithal and indeed the obligation to be thinking about next month's problems and next year's problems rather than today's problems. All the other employees are shoved down into silos and functions and given deadlines and goals and quotas. But, but it's the leaders who have the, the distance to say, hey, what do we need to be getting ready for? Whether that's a shift in the market, a shift in uh, consumer interest or, or something external like a pandemic, I feel like that's what's on the shoulders of leaders. Well, and it's such an interesting point you make is I think we have for so long put the emphasis on efficiency and optimizing for the short term. And, and what you're talking about is making, embedding resilience into your thinking. And the Trello example is a great one. That wasn't like they had to go out and do something special extra and said, let's spend next month talking about resilience. It was no, let's put into our everyday activities, making sure we're ready for something in case it happens. That's it. And I, and I love the fact that you're, you're highlighting this tension, which I think has become clear to all of us in the business world between optimization and resilience. You know, I think most of us grew up in a world where implicitly we were all trained to optimize things. Like we want to maximize revenue. We want to maximize profit. We want to increase speed. And, and that all makes sense in a short-term world. And so we design things like just-in-time inventory systems. And in our hospitals, we don't want to uh, keep a vast storage of face masks because we don't need them, but we can predict when we're going to need them. And so we'll have them arrive on the plane from China, you know, 24 hours before they're actually used by doctors in the hospital. And it's, it's kind of this, this beautiful, magical, but ultimately hollow way of thinking about this work we're doing, where, yes, we may make some marginal improvement to the balance sheet with all of this um, this kind of push for, for the final nickel of optimization. But then we find ourselves in a situation like this where the absurd happens. Like doctors and nurses are coming in for a potentially deadly job and we don't have masks for them. Why? Because just in time inventory, because of optimization, because of we traded away resilience for efficiency. And I think that that trade-off is something that we're all learning to be cognizant of and, and to be more watchful about. And I think to be fair to leaders, I think that, that that has just been part of the ether. I'm not even sure we were consciously making those trade-offs or were even aware of them. It was just kind of drilled into us. You know, you've got a number in a spreadsheet and you want that number to go up or down and you make a bunch of marginal decisions to accomplish that. But you never think about, hey, might this be kind of penny wise and pound foolish, you know, might we optimize things for one part of the organization or for one cell of the spreadsheet that makes the system as a whole weaker? Well, that's it. And you're, you're pushing to that topic of systems thinking, which I think is so important and um, often sounds so esoteric and kind of boring, but it is seeing that larger picture and seeing where are the different components here and what, 
what decisions create fragility that we may not be thinking about. And so that kind of thinking requires thinking about systems change. So as you look at organizations today or look at even at this larger global economy, where do we find the points of leverage to, to change the thinking, to, to, to restore some balance between what is optimized because it makes sense to actually optimize it versus as a term I love from a uh, professor at Pitt named Fritz Pill called strategic inefficiency of figuring out those places where it's really mm. smart to be inefficient because you need a little either given the system or you need that excess inventory. You need something. That's good. That you don't, you don't, uh, the whole system doesn't fall apart just because something unexpected happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the, the phrase leverage points is so critical here because when we're talking about complex systems, there's a risk of paralysis. You know, there are so many variables. There's so much uncertainty that it, that it just tends to, to freeze us up. And so we're trying to figure out in a complex system, where can you act to generate different results? And I think one of the best points of advice that I learned in researching this book, uh, summarized well by a guy named Brian Stevenson, who said, we've got to get proximate to problems. There's power in proximity. And one of my favorite examples of this was, there were a couple of academics from University of Chicago starting a new nonprofit called uh, the UC Crime Lab. And they were looking for answers to reduce the periodic violent crime waves in Chicago. So just freeze there. I mean, talk about a system that would just paralyze you. Why are people getting killed, especially young men, especially young black men in Chicago? Why? There's so many variables. There's so many theories. How would you ever get a handle on that? And their instinct, which I think was very wise, was we've got to train our intuition. We can't just sit in a conference room and pontificate about this. We can't just read old sociology journals. Let's go get closer to this. And so they made a deal with the medical examiner where they went and analyzed the last 100 homicide deaths among teenage males in Chicago just to learn, to see what were the circumstances, what happened. And they said it completely changed their mental model. Like they had gone in thinking, as many did in Chicago, that, that the waves of violence were the result of gangs and gang activity. And they said it, it wasn't really that so much as like a prototypical example of what they discovered was two groups of teenagers got together. They started getting in a spat. One of the kids from one of the groups accused one of the kids from the other groups of stealing their bike. And they, they kind of uh, argued and scuffled. And then the person who had been accused of stealing the bike turned his back and started to walk away. And the accuser interpreted that as a sign of disrespect, pulled out a gun and shot him in the back. That was what they found in these records. And so they said, aha, this, this is not gang activity. This is not like strategic violence. This is a group of teenage boys who are fighting about dumb stuff the way teenage boys do around the world. But for some reason, it's escalating to homicide. And so Harold Pollack, one of the academics involved, he said, we're University of Chicago, so we have to come up with equations. And he said, in this case, our, our equation was teenage boys plus alcohol plus guns plus impulsivity equals homicide. Now, so, so conceptually, notice what's going on here. They got close to the problem. They identified all those things are different leverage points, right? If, if, if we could uh, give them an anti-teenager pill, that would be a leverage point. If we could reduce their access <laughs> to guns, that would be a leverage point. If we could reduce their al access to alcohol, that would be a leverage point. But ultimately, the one they thought was most tractable was that point of impulsivity. 
And uh, this is a much longer story, but just as a headline, they ended up funding a program called Becoming a Man, which was designed to reduce the chance that you would just fly off the handle and allow something to escalate so quickly. It was, it was just to teach just a, a few seconds of reflection and self-control in really fraught situations. And the program ultimately reduced violent crime arrests by 50%. And so that's an example of you take a complex problem, you get as close as you can to it, you just you full, fill up your buffer with the raw feed, not people's interpretations, not, you know, pundits pontificating, but just get the raw feed, make sense of it, look for a leverage point, and then try to experiment. That, that's as good as I've found for a recipe for intervention. That's, that's really powerful. It reminds me of something called the rule of six, which comes out of a Native American tradition, which was that when you see something happening, try and come up with at least six hypotheses about why that might be happening. Mm. And what you've talked about, it's just exactly that. Don't, if you assume it's gang activity, you, you may go attack the wrong part of the problem and not solve it. But by looking at all the different variables, you come up with different ideas of where you may be able to find leverage. And I think it's that, that kind of thinking which gets us closer to, the, to the, root, the root cause of the problem and therefore the more likely to be able to solve it. I love that. Yeah, it's a great, great exercise for getting out of a narrow frame. Absolutely. And the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about idea I really like in the book because it relates to our meta leadership concept of connectivity is this notion of surrounding the problem and surrounding it with the right people. Tell me a bit about what you mean by that and what it looks like in practice. Yeah, let me tell a quick story that I think illustrates this well. So Expedia, which is of course the online travel site where you can book hotels and flights and not that we're doing that right now, but in theory we could. Uh, Back in 2012, a guy named Ryan O'Neill discovers something that just makes his jaw drop, which is for every hundred transactions that people are booking on Expedia, 58 of those customers go on to call the call center for support. 58 out of 100. I mean, this is an online self-service travel site. And so Ryan O'Neill is flabbergasted. He's like, what's going on? Why are people calling? And he digs through the data. He synthesizes it, figures out the number one reason people are calling was to get a copy of their itinerary. That was it. 20 million calls were logged in 2012. 20 million to get a copy of their itinerary. <laughs> so it, it's just this just incredible problem. It's a $100 million problem at $5 a call. And so how did they solve this? Well, it, it didn't take a genius. It was a very quick fix. They figured out, well, a lot of these itineraries are getting caught in spam. We can change the way we send them. Uh, We can change the language we use so people don't think it's an ad. We can give people self-service tools. It wasn't a hard technical problem. They made quick work of it. But what was more interesting is if you ask yourself, like, how could a problem like that ever blossom to that extent without it setting off an alarm bell? And and I think that's where uh, the upstream thinking comes in. So if you look at Expedia, like virtually every other company, they have themselves divided up into silos. So you've got the marketing team. And their job is to funnel people to Expedia. And then the product team uh, designs a a very intuitive uh, interface on the website to try to get people to book a transaction. And then the tech team keeps all the plumbing going and maximizes uptime. And the call center people, they're trained to get people off the phone as quickly as possible while keeping them happy. And so they've all got their little metrics. They've all got their goals. They all make sense at a micro level. But then if you ask the question, Whose job is it in this system to keep customers from needing to call? The answer is nobody. And and in fact, it's it's worse than that. Nobody even stands to benefit 
if that happens, nobody will get a raise if customer calls are cut in half. That's just not the way it was designed. And so that's an example of what I call in the book surrounding the problem. That, and this kind of goes back to the resilience optimization trade-off that, that so often what yields efficiency, which is what we prize, is fragmentation. You know, we push people to specialize. And, and so you get silos and functions and small teams and small goals and it all works, but then you blind yourself to bigger issues, you know, in the course of optimizing call times for itinerary replacements, you know, those, those reps were measured based on, can we get it down from three minutes to two minutes and 50 seconds? Now, two minutes and 40 seconds, but there's no organic reason that anybody would ask the question, hey, why is anybody calling us for an itinerary? And so to solve that problem, notice that what they had to do was they had to assemble a bunch of pieces of the puzzle that, that were largely held independent, that were rarely integrated. And so I think that's a characteristic of so many of the upstream success stories that I saw was the problem was fed or sustained by atomization, by fragmentation, and that you couldn't come up with a solution, a permanent solution, until you integrated people in a way that was unnatural at first. That is such a powerful story. And I can think of so many ways those lessons apply. And we look at, you know, again, in, in the world of preparedness and response where our listeners live, there's such a such an emphasis on the response end of things. And how do we handle the, the surge? How do we handle the, the influx of, be it calls or, or wounded or whatever, homeless, whatever it happens to be, mm-hmm. when there's very little, not good ways anyway, to connect and say, how do we stop that from ever ha- needing to happen? you know, or as much of it as possible and trying to solve it upstream. That's it. Dan Heath, I want to thank you for joining us today on Leader Readycast. The book is Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. I recommend everybody run out and get a copy or at least get online in these days when we're all at home. Well worth your time. And again, Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Eric. It was fun. Dan Heath, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great having you with us. Thank you for sharing your insights with us. It's uh, truly valuable. And again, I recommend everybody pick up the book Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. It's really relevant to our work, particularly right now. Thanks again for listening to Leader ReadyCast. We appreciate being part of your educational program. I also want you to keep your eyes open for two new online training programs from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. We're taking our meta-leadership curriculum online, offering it in concise, cost-effective modules. There'll be two courses, Crisis Leadership, Core Principles and Practices. The second, Advanced Crisis Leadership, Innovative Strategies and Decisions. We're going to start running these this summer. They'll run with additional dates in the fall and beyond. So check it out, please, at npli.sph.harvard.edu. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.